listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-DM, McGill. And I am also a co-host and co-DM, for we share the uh, duties of hosts and DMs as we tell tales of RPGs we've run in the past. And uh, together we uh, make comments and glean insights from each other's stories of uh, past role-playing games that we've run, from Dungeons & Dragons to other things, to D20 Modern. Uh, have we done any other systems? Not, not when we're talking about the campaigns. Certainly in the tavern and in our general discussion, we've touched upon rifts and world of darkness quite a bit and neither of us and scion yeah but neither of us have actually uh gone through a full campaign in any of those systems it's just been D D and d20 modern it is uh the 19th of october 2021 and this is episode 84 to my knowledge uh and uh as always well, not as all. I mean, as always, I'm gonna be telling a tale from Drail, my my Dungeons and Dragons world that we have a map of stickied on the blog on our WordPress, comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. But uh, you know, we're in the second campaign in my Drail saga. Technically, really, we're in Al's Aces. and once again, I will be uh, telling a tale of Al's Aces. I will be concluding. Act six of the Al's Aces campaign, uh, stratification with the operation, Operation Old Tree. And uh, it's going to see the final showdown with Saleth the War Witch, let me tell you. At last, get hype. Meanwhile, at last, we're finally hearing about the verse, McGill's new campaign. Tell us about that. That's right, we're diving into a new campaign uh, based on Firefly, but heavily inspired by all sorts of sci-fi and genre properties. Lots of westerns, especially in the adventure I'm going to be talking about today. There's a lot of influence from movies like Tombstone. Uh, And, uh, you know, Firefly has been off the air for, God, how long? Close to 20 years at this point. So I think the more... The more current point of inspiration that people can use as a touchstone is, of course, the Mandalorian that is doing very similar things. Space Western. But no aliens, so But no aliens, it's true. (laughs) Where's your Grogu? Where's your little green baby? Uh, Well, you know, there's there's something kind of like that that might turn up uh, in the next adventure anyway. Well, that's exciting. There are no, there are no, there are no aliens, but I will say they're kind of like, like uh, mutant animals, I guess you could say. Like that's... they're not, they're not full on alien life, but there are some sort of like monstrous beasts that lurk out there. Like one thing I was thinking about is like, I don't know, I want, I don't want to get into spoilery territory for the Expanse, but like the Expanse is generally a series in which. There are no aliens, with the exception of, like, a very sort of bizarre and mysterious, uh, almost, like, microorganism, I think. Uh, 
damn, they have like a a weird name for it too. I can't believe that I'm forgetting it. Some expanse fan is some expanse fan is gonna be in the listening to this, being like, "How could you forget the 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 meta something? The space germs." Yeah, the I want to say metavirus, but that's snow crash. Uh, uh, any ideas, McGill? No, nah, man, I still gotta power through the expanse. I think I've, I know I mentioned it to you. I can't remember if I mentioned it on the show, but I've tried a few times to really get into it, but I keep on sort of losing steam during season one, which I hear is like. This season, you kind of have to get through for things to really get, uh, get, I don't know. I don't know what's the word. Not good, but get to the point where the fandom sort of really latched onto it. I mean, uh, yeah, it's it's just like it's finding its feet in the first season. It doesn't yeah. know what kind of show it wants to be. Um, and then second season is uh, really, really good. Um, <clears throat> anyways... Who do we want to begin with? Uh, gosh, we've got a beginning and we've got an end, don't exactly. we? I guess maybe. I was just about to say that. Maybe let's start with Al's Aces. We'll conclude one uh, one act of a campaign and then start a whole new campaign. How does that sound? All right. So this one is Operation Old Tree. It is based on the Dungeons & Dragons Adventures League Expedition Season 2, Episode 14, The Sword of Selfaril. Um, This is also, I should say, um, like, the... Cer- certain in these seasons, there is often... There will often be a, a, a handful of episodes that are, like, directly connected, like our parts one through three of a specific arc within that season. Um, and the sword of self is the ending to an arc. Um, but of course, since all of this is sort of like gone through the mutation of, of, uh, being translated into my campaign for my own purposes, we haven't really been following that except that, you know, we are, following up on the uh, narrative of my own little act. So, sort of self as it falls here, as Operation Old Tree is the end to the act stratification. So, winter, which has been raging for way longer than it should in uh, northeastern Drail, is uh, finally over. Traveling under newly pleasant and sunny conditions, Al's aces are ambushed by agents of the Nightside Eclipse while carrying the Mad One's blade. And if you'll remember, this is the plus three longsword that was pulled from the mouth of the stone prison of Patrin the Mad. This, uh, so, so a little backing up a little bit. While back, they busted the Cult of Cryonax. They had this stone prison of Patrin the Mad. It's like a dragonborn trapped within a stone obelisk. And it was cursed. Uh, it had this uh, Terran inscription on it, but um, it was cursed so that if you touched it, you took acid damage, which is a bit of a problem because uh, the only way they were able to read the Terran inscriptions 
was by having Ara Stormblast Kendor use his Helm of Comprehend languages, which specifies that you have to touch the writing if you're reading something. Uh, so he had to just power through that acid damage as he read that uh, painful <laughs> inscription. By Terran, do you mean common? Terran is actually the language of like earth elementals and uh, creatures uh, related thereof. Um, another example is like Orin is the language of air elementals, but it is also the language of many uh, species like Arakakra and stuff. So it's like the avian language as well. The language of the air. So Terran is just the language of the earth. You know what's funny? Uh, this actually reminds me uh, of something that happened recently in a D&D game that I was running uh, that reminded me of something else from your campaign. Uh, you know, speaking of languages, you had we had talked previously about what language an Odiug speaks. Speaks Odiug. It speaks Odiug. Uh, I was reminded of that. DMing this adventure where a player of mine got a figurine of wondrous power, I believe it is. He got one that's uh, it's a figurine of an owl, and if he throws it to the ground and says the command word, it turns into a giant owl. And so I had to look up giant that, owls. Uh, I think that the Owl's Aces just recently got that serpentine owl figurine. Yeah. Because uh, they picked it up uh, when they were searching the Murderfrost Monastery. That's right. And uh, this caused me to look up the stats on a giant owl. And uh, do you know offhand what language a giant owl speaks? I'm guessing if it doesn't speak Orin, it speaks giant owl. That's right. It speaks giant owl. It can understand common Elvish and Sylvan, but it can only speak giant owl. That's neat that they have a bit of a, a Sylvan connection there. Ooh, the mm. Sylvan connection. That'd be a cool adventure to run. <laughs> anyway, uh, just a little tangent on linguistics, uh, because I was reminded of your Otiug uh, anecdote recently. Yep. And, uh, that, and that was another time that Arakendor's uh, Helm of Comprehend Languages came in handy because he got to speak with the Otiugs. So... The thing is, they learned from that inscription on the prison, first of all, that Patrin, from, like, history knowledge and from information uh, bestowed upon them by their employers, the Empok, they learned that Patrin... So so they've had this uh, long-standing kind of uh, missing antagonist that they've been hunting for, uh, Saleth the War Witch, who is known for being effectively held responsible for two of the biggest wars that ravaged the northern part of Drail uh, throughout history. And she disappeared for a long time, but resurfaced operating within a coven that operated against the Empok. And all of the members of that coven have been hunted down and destroyed except Saleth now, and she is sort of like the most wanted. Um, and so the party recently fought her, but she just turned to snow when she was defeated and it was clear to them that she hadn't been defeated. I didn't even, uh, I didn't even cover it cause it wasn't in my notes, but at some point when they were in the snow globe dungeon last, uh, operation, they even encountered like, like they 
eavesdropped on some cultists that were contacting Saleith from like a uh, means of communication within the snow globe. Um, so they know that she's still out there and they learned from the inscription on uh, the prison of Patrin the Mad. So Patrin the Mad historically was like a, a henchman of Saleith when she was doing her evil deeds, waging war in Northern Drail. He was a dragonborn warlock who worked for her. And eventually he went mad and sort of betrayed her. And he was trapped in this stone prison. But the inscription told the party that it was in fact his destiny to slay Saleith once and for all. And that would sort of explain why she just turned to stone when they defeated her. They needed the deed to be done by her own minion from way back when. And so they now are carrying the sword, which, so uh, they discovered that the forked tongue that was like flicking out of the mouth of Patrin in that stone prison, um, if you pulled on it, you would actually withdraw a plus three sword that was cursed. It's the Mad One's blade, and it's cursed so that even though it's a plus three longsword, you basically have disadvantage any time that you attack with it. It gives you disadvantage on saves. It's like only Patrin can effectively wield this sword. Everybody else takes huge uh, disadvantages um, if they try, try to wield it despite its powerful bonuses. And so Alzaces, the winter is finally over. They're traveling through the mountains in newly pleasant, sunny conditions. They're ambushed by the Knights at Eclipse while they are carrying the Mad One's blade. And uh, after, dri after driving this ambush back, after driving these attackers back, the party is suddenly met by Uma, the Elder Gold. Now, Uma is the oldest and most powerful dragon known in Drail. She is a gold dragon, and even though she is not... Like, there is the king and queen of the Draconic Kingdoms, uh... King Westray the Black and Queen Kiela the White. Uma the the Elder Gold holds like a a special authority above them even. It's like nobody like she doesn't run the Draconic Kingdom, but everybody acknowledges that she is like the top dragon. Sort of I hear, I hear the I hear that things got really awkward. Uh, at that awards ceremony where Dwarven Letterman kept introducing her and going, Uma, and then turning to another dragon and going, Oprah, Uma, Oprah. No? No. I mean, no. No. This, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, that's that's a reference. I sort of get what you're alluding to from what you described, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's nothing for me. And it's <laughs> nothing for dragons. <laughs> that is so, the the classic failed David Letterman Oscar host bit. Uma Oprah, Uma Oprah. Find it on our WordPress. <laughs> yeah, I guess we will. So, Uma approached the party. Um, oh, also, so Uma has a secret that none of the players who have ever played in my games knows. And it's like this question now of like, do I say what the secret is and then tell my players not to listen to it? We recently, I got to drop in on one of your games, but you just don't 
have your players listen to the podcast, but it's like, I gotta, somebody's gotta listen to the podcast. I don't have my current players listen to the podcast. True. Anybody I'm in a game with now, I don't listen to. And actually, the people that I'm in a game with now, I think there is only one player who has played in any of my other games. So don't worry. The the people who I am... It's not even that I'm discouraging them from listening. I am just not encouraging them to listen to the podcast, lest they get something spoiled. But this previous will, players are welcome to do so. This will probably be another one like the thing I said about gut bones where I just like I just it's mainly just going to be a heads up to my brother because I think that's the main one I got to <laughs> watch for. That's like, hey, don't don't listen to this one. But I'll tell you what, Uma, oldest dragon in Drail. She's a lich, man. She does a lot to cover it up. She's got all sorts of magic. You wouldn't know. Is she a, a Draco lich? Uh, I don't know about that. Maybe, maybe, maybe that maybe that she has to be because she's a dragon and she's a lich. Maybe that's what she's got to be. But you wouldn't know it. You, she came. She came to the party in her humanoid form, uh, and like she had all sorts of contingencies to make sure that you wouldn't know that she's a lich. Um, but uh. So she leads the party into the mountains surrounding the Draconic Kingdoms, and she performs a ritual while they take a short rest, and the ritual releases Patrin from the blade. But he's in, like, a highly weakened state. So now they've got this this dragonborn, this old dragonborn, and the blade is, uh, like, the blade's cursed so that only Patrin can use it effectively. So nobody really minds when Patrin snatches up the blade pretty much immediately, um, except that he's also subject because he's like Patrin the mad, he's got this weird madness. He's subject to these like fits of raging frenzy that like Uma as a super powerful dragon, she can just like calm him. Um, but the party has to either like cast calm emotions or like talk him down or something. Cause he just has like these episodes basically. So, once Uma has withdrawn Patrin from the blade, he has the blade, they've talked him down. Uma's like, okay, so here she pitches the following arrangement, which is she's going to draw Saleith to the Draconic Kingdoms for a public duel, which Saleith believes that she is incapable of lo losing because only Patrin can slay her. But then... She's going to show up to that duel, and meanwhile, the party is secretly going to escort Patrin to a draconic safe house in the kingdom via a secret route through the mountains. And the end goal is that they're going to they're going to bring Patrin to the duel unharmed and undetected, where he could then be revealed at the duel and then slay the war witch in single combat. Like, surprise, we got the one person who could kill you. We snuck them all the way here. So you had no idea that you'd be up against them and then they can put an end to her once and for all. Cool. I like I like this kind of plot structure where uh, it's, it's sort of playing with that thing that Hitchcock talks about, you know, what you let the audience in on versus what you don't. So the villain in this case has no idea what's about to happen, but you it's get to watch your irony, players. dramatic irony, man. Exactly. You get to watch your players get all excited as they're about to spring this trap. So the first step 
is that uh, the party has to escort Patrin to the safe house. Um, so, the party travels through some old, disused mountain tunnels and halls, all the while practically dragging Patrin, who uh, is basically, like, on the verge of, of being feral, basically. Um, he's also, like, quite weakened and, like, fragile because of his, like, recently reanimated state. Um, and the rest, the rest that they took when uh, he was being released from the Blade proves to be the last chance for recuperation that they get for some time because they find out that the tunnels that they're tra traveling through have become a troll nest. And so they uh, they fight a bunch of trolls while they're going through these tunnels. And then that leads to another problem because they find themselves going from a troll's nest into an Odeog's lair full of hidden black puddings. And uh, so suddenly they're surrounded by swarming black puddings and an Odeog. So they they so they're fighting trolls. They get past the troll tunnels. They're getting into a big garbage pit. They're fighting black puddings and an Odeug. Then, however, there's something amazing that Ara Kendor, Ara Stormblast Kendor, discovers in this Odeug's lair. Uh, it's a beloved new item. He risks disease from the pile of offal he finds it in, but Ara cleans it off to find a plus two shield that is unique to this Adventurers League module called the Wall of Teeth. Its description listed in the module, it's a plus two shield, and its description is, this shield is fashioned of dull black steel and festooned with hundreds upon hundreds of human teeth. And uh, I'm pretty sure our Stormblast Kendor is still using this shield to this day because what a great shield the wall of teeth you gotta floss it on the regular i don't think you do uh it's plus two shield man it's a great shield and uh eventually them uh them teeth are gonna get pretty bloody let me tell you but you should you should make her have to floss it regularly so that it doesn't make decay her. oh him make sorry him. Make him... He's the only dude it. in the party. Apologies. <laughs> Make him floss it regularly to prevent tooth decay. Nah, it's magic shield, man. Uh, maybe he does brush it. Who knows? So, uh, he gets that dope shield. But, commotion then draws the attention of the party to another battle occurring nearby in which a group of unfortunate Swerf Neblin, uh, deep gnomes, have stumbled into a similar Odeug's lair. So the party runs in, and they rescue the gnomes from the Black Puddings and the Odeug there. The Odeug there has the leader of the Swerf Neblin in their mouth when they get there, and they're like, oh man, gotta save these dang gnomes. The thankful gnomes reward the party with greater healing potions for their rescue, and then go on their way. And then, finally, the party heads off and he reaches the uh, draconic safe house that was marked out by Uma. And that safe house features a magic feast table capable of feeding 12, let alone the three aces and the mad dragonborn. So they're able to take a long rest there. Also, the safe house has a teleportation circle so that the party can arrive suddenly and unexpectedly at the duel from this point. So they enjoy their long rest after the journey. And... Uh, then 
Uma contacts them again and informs them that Saleith has showed up for the duel, but she has brought no small number of cultists into the city with her. A huge retinue of ne'er-do-wells has come with her. And so, uh, while the cultists seem to be respecting the terms of the duel, like they've just showed up in force to support uh, Saleith, Uma suspects that they're going to try and sabotage the duel, uh, and she's particularly worried that once they show up with Patrin, they're just going to try and kill Patrin before he can make it into the... In, in, like, before he can make it to Saleith. So... The party gets an additional task before uh, they head to the duel, which is Uma tells them to gather as many local allies as possible to counteract the cult presence at the event. So McGill, who do we call on but all the friends that we've made this act? This all is also... Well, like, uh, let's see how many you can name. How uh, Who... Who that we've helped out this season would you call on for, for assistance uh, to outweigh the presence of the cult at this big old duel? Uh, let's see here. The Dwarf King. Gotta call on that. Uh, yeah. It has the syllable under in it, right? Is it uh, a Munder? Is that it? Oh, no, you're confusing him with uh, Ambassador Garlunder. Rest, may, Garlunder, may his right. soul rust, rest. Um, no, that uh, King Abo Stormhammer. Abo Stormhammer, that's right. You got, uh, if, you got a, if you got a favor with a Dwarven King, you gotta call in the Dwarven King favor. Hell yeah. Exactly. And what Who about um, is the Elves of Crystalguard? Uh... They're a bit far away for this one. They wouldn't exactly be local allies. Keep in mind ah. as well that there's been a, a length of about like three months because of the extended winter. Uh, so I think that if they were nearby, uh, the octopus has moved on since. The goblins? They calling in the goblins? Eh, you could... You could usually call in on goblins, but uh, I don't think they have any particularly f particular favors with any goblins in the area. Hmm. I'm think, not sure who. Oh, the Sunsmoke. Oh, yeah. Sunsmoke Order. Yeah. There you go. That's somebody that they. Uh, I mean, they got a an honorary membership. They helped the Sunsmoke Order so much. That's this right. Act. Um. So. Uh, I'll, I'll list some other ones for you, unless you've got any more guesses. Uh, no, not off the top of my head, anyway. So, thinking back to the first operation, uh, remember when they rescued all those Goliaths from that bogus Sunsmoke retreat in the first operation? Here come the Goliaths, baby! How many adventures ago was that? Uh... Let me, uh, let me investigate for you. Check the old, uh, records of past MPOC operations. Uh, so that was Operation Slay Ride, so... That was 24, and this is 32. So that was, you know, technically eight or, or seven operations ago. Nice. Um... So that was right at the beginning. Uh, then, you know who they just rescued? 
was those Smurf Neblin. Sure, they'll help out. You know? So then <laughs> nice. uh, you, you called the Sunsmoke monks. Um, they've saved the order like three times and they're honorary members. You know who else they're going to call on? The surviving flump from Foulness Beneath Molemaster? <laughs> Hell yeah! Great. Keep in mind that this is actually part of the the Adventurers League module as well. Is this whole thing of like you go back and you call on all the contacts you made um, in the city that this season took place in. So, you know, it lists like uh, the monks, the uh, flump. Um, there's a really odd one that's funny. Uh, it's a shout out to like olden Dungeons and Dragons lore for the city where it takes place. So the season takes place in Mullmaster, but historically there has been a group uh, outside Mullmaster. God, I wish I could remember their name. Basically, it's like a cabal of beholders. And it's like a whole bunch of them. And they're like this this conspiracy of evil uh, beholders that like holds um, like holds political clout in the city by way of fear. Um, but there's supposed to be like a ton of them. And then the Adventures League module actually establishes a bit of like a lore update wherein it's basically says that at some point since their last appearance in Dungeons and Dragons lore an adventuring party like caved in the cavern that they all lived in with all of them in it and only about six of them survived but the six of them are still keeping up the like trying to maintain the facade that there is a ton of them so they don't come out of the cavern ever and like they only they they use illusions basically so that whenever somebody like comes to them they make it seem like there's a lot more of them and they use echoes and stuff to make it seem like there's actually like a hundred of them um but they are one of the allies that can be called in in the adventurers league or or at least you can go to them uh to ask for assistance whether they give it or not um and then yeah we also covered the dwarves which you mentioned uh that the king owes them of course but also there's that embarrassed guard captain sergeant kalkin that falsely accused them of the murder of ambassador garlunder he probably <laughs> owes them something and there's that inventor professor nesne and robling who they saved from the uh kenku gang while they were in Arden. So so he owes them uh, as well. So they got plenty of dwarven favors. Uh so suffice to say, while Selaith may have filled the hall with ne'er do wells, the aces arrive to find a crowd on their side as well. And when the duel begins, the cult of Cryonax tries to disrupt the proceedings by summoning devils, with the party's allies work in concert to combat them. So the flump can identify and harass any of the dangerous spellcasters in the cult so that their spells never get cast. The Swerf Neblins scatter through the crowd and frustrate the effectiveness of the enemy's ranged attacks because they can't see where anybody's going because everywhere they look, there's just somebody jumping and going under somebody. 
Uh, the dwarves and the monks, they give the cultists a brutal hammering. They're just the offensive force. But then the Goliaths are sort of, like, defending them like bodyguards, and the Goliaths have, like, this ability to, like, harden their skin and, and resist damage from attacks. So they're basically taking hits for the less durable creatures and protecting the, the dwarves and the, and the monks who are punishing the cultists. And uh, when the terrified Saleith is finally brought face to face with the wrath of her former henchmen, who was fated to be her end, Patrin uses the longsword more like a butcher's implement than a martial weapon. Saleith's fate, as the inscription on Patrin's prison described, did indeed lie within the jaws of Patrin, for after cutting her apart, he savagely devoured her and disappeared when the deed was done. And that was the end of Act 6, Stratification of Al's Aces, the second campaign in the Empox Saga. Whoa! But not the end of the campaign, though. No, we still got three more acts. Still don't know what happened to Odium. This was really cool, though. I love the... Uh getting all the allies together for a big confrontation. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a great way to to end the act. It didn't actually run too long, uh certainly compared to the one before it. Like it's it really felt like the real sort of challenge climax of the act was the snow globe dungeon in the previous uh operation, but then this was the big sort of like cinematic finale where i'm not necessarily like trying to test their ability so much as i'm giving them a a, a big good send-off for the act how did you run the part where they were calling upon all their allies did you do it sort of like montage style or did you have them role play different scenes um i think they generally i i generally just sort of like open it up to them like gave them suggest like I I think what I did was I listed all the people who they had helped in that act so far um and asked them like who would they want to contact but I think for a con for for the actual like act of contacting it it was generally kind of like by remote it was like we use sending spells or we contact somebody at the empoc and then they will get in touch with these contacts um, because the idea was like, they didn't want to, like, they had to keep an eye on Patrin. And then the setup was that they would go with Patrin through the teleportation circle right to where it was. And the crowd would already be there for them. Um, so it was something that they sort of like did, uh, from their location at the safe house. They just sort of like called on all their allies and said, like, we need you at this place for this thing. And then uh, when they arrived at the event, everybody was just there and ready. That's awesome. That must have been like a, a big fun moment for the players. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was a it was a lot of fun. They certainly uh, made short work of the cultists. So I guess it's uh, your side of things now, eh? Yeah, I was actually Finally. just about to ask, though, about... Uh, do you take breaks in between acts? Like uh, you, we have these clearly defined acts in your campaign, but is there anything like, how do you choose where to end an act? 
And does that signify anything other than like a story milestone? I choose where to end an act based on the album that I'm <laughs> so the <laughs> act ends sh- when I the album ends. Yeah. I like, should have guessed. Like, the last track or like the last track name of that album that is put on an operation. That's the last operation in the act. Um, I, when you say breaks, do you mean like actually stop playing for like a week? No, don't do that at all. Never stop. Never stop if we can help it. Um, but it is often, I mean, we, we've talked before about how when I start a new act, that's often a time where I have to sort of go through a lot of, a lot of things that we didn't cover in the individual operations, but have been coming together sort of through the, uh, background narrative of the act, like for certainly for the, for the, uh, purposes of this show, act breaks tend to delineate when I'm going to have to give an update on what's going on in the background of the overall campaign. Um, because it's not like, you know, throughout the past eight at like this and the previous seven episodes, I guess, um, everything has been focused pretty clearly on this act northeastern drail the big winter Saleth, the cult of crying acts all of that is like clearly at hand and in our minds but there's always background stuff like the search for odium uh serpentine coming back from citra arha suddenly these things uh uh the the crimson chambers and the vampires that are being held in those like suspended animation tanks these are all things that are still like happening in the background. Um, but because we're so focused on like the driving elements of the act, it's not really until the act breaks that I do the sort of update that's like, and here's what's been going on with that. And that part of that is because though like those updates will go to inform why the next act is what it is. Like, um, this act was what it was because Saleth was still out there and it was like this loose end that was dangling um, when they got back from Citra Arha and so it, it needed to be tied up. Um, and so the, the next act, like uh, the next episode, I'll be doing the whole sort of like beginning of an act thing where I'm like, so this is, here's what's been happening in the background uh, over the course of the last act. Cool. Looking forward to it, man. I want to know the the answers to these mysteries. I want to see the bad guys defeated after all this. Well, Saleth's down, but uh, that's just one of the Nightside Eclipse's tools. Yeah. Though uh, a long time coming, that one. Yeah, for sure. So... Over in the verse, um, I gave some background on this campaign on our last episode, and I talked about the characters, but there is also something that I should have mentioned then, but I'll mention it now, uh, because it only came back to me as I was reading through all my notes. 
for this uh, campaign in preparation for this episode. And that is that uh, I think of all the campaigns I've run, this one has the most thorough notes because this is the one that I wrote the most from scratch to create it. Um, I was taken, of course, a lot of inspiration from all the different sources that I mentioned earlier, but I wanted to just sort of build this as much from my own ideas as I could. I think a big part of the reason that people still like Firefly to this day, even though it only got 13 episodes like over a decade ago, is because of the potential they see in the world of that show. And it's funny because, like, I like Firefly, but I don't even think that whole season, that one season, I don't think all the episodes are actually great across the board. I think there's some really good ones, and then there are some that just aren't as good. But I, too, really saw the potential in the world of that show. And so I studied up, and I read a lot about how uh, Joss Whedon had conceived of this world, like he came up with this uh, timeline of history to give it background, and it really is, like a lot of it is just uh, American history translated into space, where there were pioneers, but instead of going to, you know, America, they were going to new planets out in, out in space, because Earth's, uh, Earth's ecology had been destroyed. And uh, there's the Civil War and, uh, you know, the, the brown coats versus the Alliance. It's just like the North versus the South. And uh, he also talks a lot about how he didn't want to make, you know, good versus bad all that clear. He wanted it to all sort of exist in this gray area. And on top of that... One of the big sort of one of his mandates for the show is he wanted to make it seem like like uh, the victories were always hard won and getting out like just with your life. That should still be seen as a big win in this rough and tumble sort of backwater galaxy where, you know, the, the gun sort of rules and crime is everywhere and it's full of low lives and scumbags and uh so I really was trying to evoke that world. Even though I was coming up with a lot of this stuff from scratch, I really wanted to have it, you know, have this cinematic quality to it, get it so that everybody can really clearly picture everything in their mind and, uh, and just sort of play around with the idea of like, there, there's no good versus bad. The players are going to be good sometimes, they're going to be bad sometimes, and that's part of the fun. So, uh, the adventure starts in this place called Cleaver, and I gave a bit of an introduction to it last time, but I'll reiterate some of the things here. It used to be a boom town uh, with these, these big forests on, uh, on this planet, and uh, Cleaver was, was founded there, and there was a big lumber mill uh, that helped the colony flourish. There was no shortage of trees for locals to turn into houses or wagons or anything else they needed. But then the Alliance stepped in and ruined it. Because of the war, they shut down the lumber mill and turned it into a military factory, and the colony started drying up, and uh, it became much more of a, like, Moss Eisley spaceport type thing where it's just, you know, full of scumbags and... Uh, 
and the impoverished people with with actual money who used to live there have left and the whole settlement is now falling into decay. And so the Alliance has decided that this is a perfect place to start their pilot project called the Rejuvenation After Unification Project. After the Alliance won the war, they're going to boost the economy of the dying colony, but also restore and reopen the Alliance factory. And so all these uh, Alliance folks are now coming into town and the the sort of the families and scumbags who live there are getting ready to just get off planet because they want nothing to do with the Alliance. And so Cleaver is where we set our scene. And there's a colony to the south of Cleaver called Remy that I mentioned. And Remy has started suffering as well by, you know, colonists are leaving, business is dry, drying up, and the Alliance is just going to basically bulldoze everything left there that is sort of independently owned and turn it into a big alliance operation. So the game starts, it's a hot day with a blue sky, and uh, Gale, our heavy, has spent the night drinking. He got into a big fight at a bar and was thrown in the local jail. And so he is awakened by the sheriff hauling him out of his cot and throwing him out into the street, sending him tumbling down the front steps, and the sheriff says, you know, this place isn't a bunkhouse. I want to see you here again. And uh, he goes back inside and he pulls it, like gets all of Gale's belongings and chuck them, chucks them on the ground next to Gale. But he keeps Gale's gun, which is Gale's father's gun, in fact, that was Whoa, handed down I to him. Whoa, I had mustard. <laughs> and he says, uh, he says, Alliance Ordinance says nobody except the authorities can carry a gun in town anymore either. And you're no authority. Sorry about that. And so he takes Gale's gun. And Gale sort of staggers to his feet and stumbles off down the main drag of Cleaver. And uh, something else that I really wanted to do here is I wanted to do a lot of like establishing details ahead of time, setting up these ideas like Chekhov's guns that will be fired off later on. So a background detail as I described the main drag of Cleaver is that uh, some people were hanging a banner for the annual Cleaver Autumn Festival, music, games, and a bonfire celebration to be the last one of these festivals before everybody packs up and the Alliance moves in. Uh, meanwhile, Song, who is played by Cater and is the local Sawbones, he's been up all day and, uh, he's been, you know, tending to the wounded. He removed a nail that had gone through a colonist's hand while he was repairing his wagon. He set a child's foot that had been crushed under a horse's hoof. And now he's on that same main drag inspecting a wound on the flank of a horse owned by a local farmer. And I had uh, Song do some uh, some treat injury checks and medicine checks to diagnose this wound and then dress it. Um, as that is going on, Caesar, who it specializes in piloting ships and has a job in the settlement of Remy as a test pilot, at Daniel Stack's garage, any uh, ships that Daniel fixes, 
Caesar will test fly to make sure that they work okay. And Daniel, of course, is going to be the NPC that I control, and he will be the eventual captain of their ship once that comes into play. And so Caesar's coming um, into town. Yeah? I have a question. Is... Uh... Is uh, you you said that song is a sawbones? Is that equivalent to a doctor, or is it more specifically like a surgeon? Uh, well, it's sort of like an all-purpose doctor and surgeon. I was like very much thinking of uh, the sawbones type characters that you see in westerns, where they can tend to you know basic wounds, but they're also like veterinarians. And when push comes to shove, maybe they can like amputate a limb as needed. So it's sort of like an all-purpose medicinal character. He was just playing, because uh, this was a D20 sister, he was just playing a smart character, uh, specializing in all int-based checks. What I'm wondering is, like, so in Remy, if you're sick, you come to that guy? Uh, if you're in Cleaver, if you're sick, you come to Song. Yeah. And have the Alliance started showing up yet? No, but they are about to. This is basically like the last night before they arrive on mass. There's still like there are maybe a few of them around, but uh, but they aren't everywhere. It's not like they're they've taken over as the cops or anything like that. Because I feel like Haunch Darling might be on the scene at this point, and he might be knocking on Song's uh, door like, "Excuse me, sir. Oh, I think I'm I have a lot of nosebleeds rather lately." And uh, he's just allergic to this uh, planet. He's he's a dumb. He's a, he's just a kid from Got the Alliance schools. Life. He's just a he's just a kid from the Alliance schools. He hasn't he doesn't he's bored. He doesn't know nothing about nothing, and uh, he doesn't get out much. So this is the start of his adventure. I've been to every specialist in Remy. They couldn't help me with me lifelong nosebleeds. Um, yeah, I like that. So, so song, uh, tr not lifelong. It's just because he's on a strange planet. And he's not used to it. He's like, oh, he's not, he's not, he's not from this planet. Gotcha. Uh, he's, he's, he's definitely Alliance schools. He's definitely from like the snooty academies of the bigger, the big dog, you know? That makes sense. So song treats the horse and then treats haunch darling. Um, by, by telling him, yeah, you've got allergies. <laughs> Gives him a Kleenex. <laughs> um, so Caesar is uh, pulling in to Cleaver at this point. Uh, one of the details I, I had here is because the Alliance wants Cleaver to flourish as a colony, they have ordered the uh, redirection of uh, the Alliance runs the postal system, so all the mail no longer goes to Remy. It all goes to Cleaver to encourage more people to go there and spend more money. And uh, so Caesar, because uh, she helps run a garage in Remy, she's now been sent to Cleaver to pick up uh, a ship part that they ordered. And she's just really annoyed that now she has to like travel several hours to go get it when she used to be able to just pick it up down the street. And uh, so she's pulling in, she's driving a, a big all-terrain vehicle. Basically any of these ATVs, whether they have wheels or treads or hover, uh, in the world of Firefly, they're always called mules. So she's uh, driving an all-terrain mule uh, into Cleaver. 
And as she does so, suddenly this huge cargo ship just flies low overhead and buzzes the whole settlement. And oh, you uh, could call them as you could call them Bobs, which would stand for beast, beast of Burden or Bots of Burden. Ah, hey, that's not bad. I would think a Bob would be more like one of those do- uh, Boston Dynamic uh, big dog creatures. <laughs> you know, the the robots with four legs. I mean, uh, they've got to have different species. <laughs> um, so this big cargo ship, bigger than anything that Caesar has seen in this area, is flying into town. And uh, I let Cecily do some knowledge checks to identify the ship because Caesar loves ships. And uh, she gets so caught up in that that I also have to have to make her do a drive check because she's not paying attention and she almost runs over an Allied Forces war vet who's walking along the side of the street. The ship comes in and lands next to an empty corral, next to a, a business that used to be a coffin maker's but is just defunct now and there are empty coffins scattered all over the street in front of it. Um, so everybody is just immediately t- uh, surprised to see this huge ship fly into town. Uh, it's not an Alliance ship and in fact it's just a cargo ship picking up a package that would otherwise have been sent to Remy and on that ship is Caitlin's character Minerva. And uh, something that I didn't mention last time because I had forgotten about it until I started reading my notes here, is uh, Minerva has a dog, uh, an Irish wolfhound named Allegro. Uh, Caitlin had requested that sort of in between when I wrote down some summary notes and the first session. So Minerva has been hitching a ride on this cargo ship where she's going. Nobody is sure. And Wait, what's she the dog's has name? Allegro. Right. And she has... Uh, she has a background with the Alliance. She's like a former Alliance spy, uh, former Alliance like face man, special operative who is now quit. And, uh, you know, maybe that'll come into play a little bit later, but that's sort of her secret background. And one of the reasons that she's sort of on the run, heading out to the Outer Rim and also doesn't want to stay too long in Cleaver because the Alliance are going to show up again. And she just doesn't want anything to do with it. And, uh, so the captain of this ship is a guy called Captain Ben Hastings, and he's like he wears cargo shorts and uh, and uh, a Hawaiian shirt and a baseball cap. And uh, he says, OK, well, I got to go and collect my cargo and you can't stay on the ship while I do that. I don't want anybody alone with my cargo on my ship when I'm not here. So go, you know, make yourself busy for an hour or two while I pick up the packages. And so Minerva has arrived in Cleaver as well. And here we go. All our players are now in the same place. Um, Caesar and Minerva and Hastings all go to the local general store and postal depot and uh, got, you know, my list of sort of space farming equipment that they can peruse while they're in the shop. The guy who runs it, uh, says, you know, sorry, friends, the delivery ship was delayed until tomorrow morning. So, you know, you're stuck here at least until tomorrow if you want to wait for your mail. Uh, But as long as you're here, you might as well join in the festivities tonight. There's going to be a big party. And uh, the owner of the saloon next door, a guy named Sneed, 
is selling off his stock at barrel bottom prices because he's shutting down the saloon and then pulling up stakes and leaving town. And uh, so everybody's kind of like stuck waiting and I give my players a chance for some downtime, allow them the opportunity to interact with each other and, you know, interact with the NPCs, uh, just sort of settle in, see if there's anything they want to do or any shopping they want to do, anything like that. I just recently got my Interstellar Antiquities Diploma and I can't wait to go on my first field assignment as soon as I find one. <laughs> well, it's not going to be here, kid. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, or is it? Or Adventure. Is it? I guess it could be. There might be an opportunity. We'll see. Whatever gets this adventure kicked off, this is gonna. This kid's gonna get dragged along with it. I think that. Uh, I think there will be plenty of room, at least in the cargo hold, for little Haunch Darling. <laughs> oh, little Haunch Darling! So that evening, the sun is setting. Uh, a bonfire is lit in the center of town. Uh, a three-piece band with fiddle, guitar, and flute strike up a rousing tune. And Sneed, the uh, owner of the saloon, steps out into the town square and he goes, All right, everyone, liquor is half price tonight. And on top of that, we have giveaways. Every time a bottle is drained, my assistant, and he waves up at the saloon's balcony where, uh, you know, a beautiful dame in a worn but still pretty gown is up there with a rifle. Uh, she, every time a bottle's drained, she's going to toss it into the air and if anybody can shoot it with that rifle before it hits the ground, you get a free bottle of booze. But you have to use this rifle, none of your own fancy weaponry. And so they kick off the big party. Kids set off firecrackers. Uh, there's like an, a sort of a crusty old prospector type guy with a long metal fork and he starts roasting skinned rabbits over the bonfire. The sheriff uh, sort of leans in his doorway, supervising the party, puffing on his pipe. And I let the players interact with the party as much as they wanted. I remember Gail specifically trying several times to do the shoot the bottle trick and he won a couple of bottles of booze. Um, a funny detail about this, uh, I thought I liked uh, what Cater did here is Song. While Song is like an intelligent hero and a you know competent doctor and surgeon and veterinarian, he is also very riddled with vices. So he's also a hard drinker. If there are drugs around, he'll take some of those. Like he is, he is a very sort of amoral doctor who. Uh, who doesn't really uh, necessarily practice what he preaches as far as health concerns. Uh, and, you know, Minerva really liked the band and I, she could play uh, violin, so she played with them a bit. Everybody just had a lot of time playing around at this country fair. But then suddenly there is the sound of hoofbeats over the sound of revelry. Minerva's dog, Allegro, like his ears prick up and he whines as he hears the sounds of incoming horses. And suddenly, uh, you know, somebody tosses, Xenia uh, tosses the bottle in the air to be shot, but the bottle explodes, not shot by the person with the rifle, but by one of 40 cowboys who come thundering into town and begin circling the festivities. The leader of the cowboys is this guy named Big Smith, 
which is uh, a name that I poached from uh, the Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., the the sci-fi Western TV series starring Bruce Campbell that only lasted one season. But I'm a fan, and uh, Big Smith is one of the villains on that show, so he is the leader of this gang of cowboys who call themselves the Bulldogger Boys. And they didn't come here looking for no trouble. Instead, they just came to take what few pickings are left in the town and then be on their merry way. And so because the crowd is outnumbered by about eight to one, they have no choice but to go along with this. And they watch dismayed as the Bulldogger Boys just, you know, pack everything away. They drink the booze. The roast rabbit is sloppily eaten in front of everyone. Even the crooked rifle that could barely hit the broadside of a barn uh, being used in the shooting contents, even that is taken away. And then uh, as this is going on, there's a gunshot and some raucous laughter from inside the sheriff's office as the sheriff is thrown outside, bleeding from the nose, and he's being tormented by a pair of cowboys who shoving him in the dirt, making fun of him. Something that I like about uh, this particular Firefly setting is uh, all the guns are just guns. They're projectile weapons. They're not like lasers or anything like that. Like there's an episode of the Firefly TV series where the big thing is that the bad guy has a laser. Like it's a big deal because nobody has lasers. So uh, something that I love here is we're doing this like it feels like the Old West. It's got a sci-fi veneer, but uh, the cowboy who's threatening the sheriff, he's just got a desert eagle. So you got some just modern guns mixed in there, too. Um, They, you know, kick the sheriff's ass a bit, but they don't kill him. And uh, as they're tormenting the sheriff, another cowboy rides into town and he goes, boss, there's a big ship in town tonight, this big cargo ship, boss, and it's right over there. And, you know, the cowboys turn around, Biggs looks at this huge ship at the end of town, and then he turns back to the crowd and goes, okay, which one of you owns the ship? Spill it. And uh, I don't remember if the players volunteered this information right away, but uh, in my notes I have sort of like an escalation table where it's like if nobody answers it first, First, Biggs will pull out his gun, fire a shot in the air, and threaten the crowd in general. And then it'll escalate where it's like, then he'll threaten a specific person. You threaten the sheriff. Maybe you're threatening a kid. And then... Oh, not me. Not me, sir. Could be Haunch. I haven't Uh, done my life's work, sir. uh, And basically, whatever the case happens, eventually Hastings reveals that he owns the ship. He turns over his keys, the cowboys take possession of the ship, and then the gang also shoot the sheriff, and they shoot Hastings in cold blood and root through their pockets, tossing anything that they don't see any value in just all over the ground. The cowboys finish their looting, Uh, they force the band to play, they shoot bottles in the air, they eat all the rabbits, they start joyriding in the cargo ship back and forth over the town square, children are crying, no one is harmed, you know, other than the people, who, the, the other than Meehan and Hastings, who were both killed, no one else is harmed in any way that they can't recover from. And the gang prepares to leave town just as day is breaking. But just and, in case, Haunch Darling does a little sleight of hand check and manages to slip one of uh, Song's scalpels away from him while he's all wasted. 
Ah, now, pockets, now he's got pockets of blade. Um, so Big Smith like laughs at everyone and goes, you folks have been just dandy. It's a real shame this shithole is going to be uh, gone in a few days' time. I'm just going to have to find some other shithole to pick at. And uh, at the end of the street, they fire up the engines of the big cargo ship and they open the cargo bay door and all the cowboys just ride their horses up into it and the ship flies away and Big Smith taunts everybody. There'd be a tense standoff when uh, Haunch yelled, why don't you pick out your own shithole? And uh, <laughs> they like, he's like, who said that? And they like the crowd disperses and he like holds the kid at gunpoint and it looks like he's going to murder him. And then he just like, you know, clicks the gun and he's like, ah, ha, ha, and then they leave him and. <laughs> and they fly away as the sun rises and the over the camera town. keeps cutting to in Haunch's pocket. He keeps gripping the scalpel, scalpel, but he knows that he he makes a move. He's definitely dead. Tighter and tighter. And then they just laugh in his face and fly off into the sunrise. So it's a brand new day. And uh, as the sun is climbing into the sky, Cleaver looks terrible. Um, you know, the the festival was trashed. Uh, the general store was ransacked. Um, Sneed and Xenia are loading up a big dune buggy with the remaining belongings, piling them high into the cargo bunk. And uh, they're just getting ready to leave town. One of the farmhands is loading Hastings and Meehan's bodies into two of the leftover coffins from the abandoned coffin shop. And he's got a black eye. He was he was punched as well. Um, in between these details, I just keep giving the players just like, you know, I pause for a minute and just see if they have anything they want to do. But generally, they're just sort of like healing themselves up. Song went and treated a few people's wounds. And then suddenly, uh, an Alliance courier ship just flies down, circles the intersection, lands directly in front of the general store, and then an Alliance Postal Service guy comes out, and he's got a computer tablet, and he's pushing a hover pallet that has a bunch of crates on it. And he goes into the general store, and he gets the, uh, the store clerk to sign for it, pressing his thumb onto the, uh, the tablet, and then uh, takes off as well. And uh, the store owner looks through the manifest and uh, enlists off everything that's there. And so one of the one of the things on his palette on the palette is a crate belonging to the late Ben ha Captain Ben Hastings. And then another thing on there is the compression cylinder that uh, Caesar came to town to pick up to help fix a ship. Um. Courier just leaves, he gets on his ship, and he takes off. Uh, I have a note here that if any of the players ask to go with the courier, he just refuses and says it's against Alliance protocol, and takes off without them. Uh, the general store owner looks over the, uh, the list of inventory, and he goes, well, seeing how Mr. Hastings is now the late Mr. Hastings, I take you, madam, to be his next of kin since you showed up with him. And he gives Minerva this locked crate. She doesn't know what's in it. And general store guy says, you know, it's not staying with me. Sell it, trade it, whatever you like, but I don't have room for it. And so Minerva takes possession of this mystery package. 
Um, they the uh, store owner shuts up the shop, and it is at this point that I let the players sort of decide their next move, hoping that I have set up enough stuff that they decide to go where I want them to go. Where do you where do you think? What do you think I wanted their next move to be? Uh, I mean, to get a ship? Yeah, where do you think they can get a ship? At Remy? You got it. And uh, that's exactly what they decided to do, especially now that Caesar has a part to fix a ship. So there's discussion amongst them, just going like, oh, we all got to get out of town. Like, things are getting bad here. Uh, anybody know of a ship we can catch off world? And that's where Caesar goes, oh, yeah. I can hook you up with a ship for a price, or at least you can pay to, you know, catch one off the planet in Remy. And so they all head off uh, in that direction on the ATV, on Caesar's mule. Moments later, they're all rumbling along this rocky road out of town, and uh, I let them do a, a check to see uh, if they can detect what's about to happen because little do they know there is an ambush ahead and it is Allegro, Minerva's dog, who actually tips them off, you know, sensing something is amiss up ahead and just in time to, for the ambush to be sprung and suddenly the mule is once again surrounded by members of the cowboy gang, the bulldogger boys. Uh, not the leader, but the players recognize several of them from the night before and, uh, including one of them who has Gale's gun robbed from the sheriff's, uh, the sheriff's uh, office. And so uh, this is another case I was saying, like, you know, make every victory hard one. I'm having the players get robbed twice in a row. They got robbed last night and then they're being stuck up and robbed again as Minerva's, uh, Minerva's crate is stolen, the part they need for the ship is stolen, Song's medical kit is stolen, and Gale is held hostage with his own gun. Uh, so they were like, they, want, they had it in for the Bulldogger boys at this point. And uh, the Bulldoggers let them go. Uh, miraculously, they don't steal the mule, uh, though I had the option for that to happen if things like really escalated. But the players just sort of gave over their possessions. The cowboys let them keep the mule and they proceeded on to Remy while the goons depart up a path through the woods. And uh, the path through the woods, uh, I saw a couple of my players make note of this, but nobody commented on it. Where do you think the path through the woods goes? It's a place I've already mentioned. Uh, oh, the old lumber mill. You got it, man. So now they've got a bead on where the cowboys make their hideout and where all their stuff is. So the players go to Remy, they head into town, and I wanted this one to seem much more like a, again, like a Moss Eisley set, uh, settlement, like small but bustling. The streets are crowded with quad bikes and horses, jeeps, cows, merchants. There are people smoking hookah pipes and drinking coffee at outdoor cantinas. Thugs, bounty hunters, farmers, kids, chickens, all of those things. Um... And they pull in to a big garage called Stacks Ship Repairs and Detailing. It's this warehouse-like garage. 
and uh, the front of the building has two big doors wide open and inside is a network of three circular courtyards uh, separated by shadowy areas lit with fluorescent lighting uh, filled with like hooks and chests and workbenches all overflowing with dirty tools. Only one of the courtyards has a ship in it and there is Daniel Stack hopping around and he's like doing a funny kind of gyrating dance as he's working on this ship and as the players approach they can see that he's got headphones on and he's like dancing to music. Another, another note here about the kind of world building that I wanted to do. Uh, this was more inspired by world building in Star Wars, but I really love the idea of just mixing high-tech stuff with analog lower-tech stuff. So like just a detail that I really like is he's working on a spaceship, but he still has to plug in his headphones with a really long cord. That's the kind of like Star Lord. Yeah, it's just kind of like the juxtaposition that I like, like the big chunky headphones and then like a really long spiral cord that like snakes off, you know, into the building plugged in somewhere. So no, no, not a lot of wireless technology. Um, and he's dancing around to his music and he finally takes notice of everybody and pulls off the headphones. Dancing hooked on a feeling. Yeah, he might as well be Guardians hooked on a feeling. Guardians of the Galaxy feeling. hasn't even come out yet. It, it's true. This predates Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, and so Daniel notices and goes like, oh, oh, sorry. Welcome to my place. I'm Daniel Stack. Need your ship fixed? Like, that's what I do. And he hands out, he like sticks out his hand. It's totally dirty. Grabs a rag from his pocket and like wipes it on his hand and makes it dirtier. And then offers it back to shake. Uh, introductions all around. And then... Uh, and he says, so, Caesar, did you get our package? Turns out our client couldn't afford all the work that we did on his boat, plus the cost of the replacement parts. So rather than pay us, he just gave me this busted ass ship. But if that compression cylinder is not defective, it should fly. And he sort of runs his hand on the ship and he goes like, she doesn't have a name yet. She's all, or all ours. We can take her anywhere. Everybody... Fills him in on what happened. The compression cylinder isn't there. It was stolen by the Bulldogger boys. And he sort of thinks it over and he goes, well, the ship's going to need a crew. I already got the best pilot out in this way. And he points to Caesar and he goes, you lot are exactly what I'm looking for. And he looks at, the, at Gale and Song and Minerva and he goes, you got brains, you got brawn, you got boot, you got beauty. You're, you're, you're the perfect crew. Tell you what. Uh, I'll pay you 100 credits each up front to sign on to my ship. You help me get my part back from those Bulldogger boys. And then I'll give you 200 more when we get back and you fully come on as my crew. What do you say? And the players sort of think it over. And they accept. And he goes, all right. Will let's you sign my credit papers for the Alliance schools? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, kid. Yes. Um, let's steal what's been stolen. And so they start formulating a plan. And between what they already knew and a few carefully placed, like, intelligence checks, uh, they figure out what you did, where the Bulldogger boys are holed up in the former lumber mill turned abandoned military factory up on a nearby crag. And, uh... 
they're the players are lacking in weaponry now because the bulldogger boys took them all away but they've got a bunch of like tools and stuff that they can use just for melee combat from the garage and they're trying they try to think up like how they can get their stuff back and the plan they create is they want to they, they formulate a plan where they want to create a big distraction to lure the bulldogger boys out of the building so that some of the group can sneak in grab all their loot and then get out of there before the cowboys realize they've been had and uh so this is what they did is uh they went up there and daniel and caesar just rigged the mule to drive in circles out front so they've got the mule driving in circles out front and uh they daniel like makes some big noises the bulldogger boys come out to see it you know drive around in circles and they're confused as to what it means and then daniel and caesar run out of the bushes and start chasing around the atv asking for help the cowboys are immediately like have their guard up they don't know what's going on but this is weird this is highly suspicious but it's enough of a distraction so that gail and song and minerva and i guess haunch can sneak in the back way to get gail's gun song's medical kit minerva's package and the compression cylinder and then uh just as they're leaving the the factory the abandoned factory they get caught by the cowboy who shot the sheriff and a dust-up occurs uh now that they've got weaponry they have a little shootout but they're not really trying to kill all the bad guys they're just trying to like you know, pick off a couple of them and get away. And that's what they do. And the gunshots of the shootout uh, just sort of fade into the popping of corks as Daniel Stack unstoppers a bunch of bottles that uh, were recently retrieved from the Bulldogger Boys Hall. Everybody starts, you know, drinking in celebration. Daniel says, you know, that was some mighty fine work you all did. You ought to be proud. And so he turns his attention back to the ship and he goes, all right, folks, so what are we going to call her? She wouldn't be flight ready if it wasn't for you. And if she's going to fly, she needs a name and a heading for that matter. And so the players all start brainstorming names. They don't settle one on this adventure, but I have the top five here. Uh, the Cavalier, the Spirit, the Phoenix, the Ladybird, and the Skycarver. The five that sort of made the final list and they... They all sort of take some time to think about which one's their favorite. Um, they look for a heading, and uh, Daniel suggests that he knows a guy in a nearby planet called Ezra that might be able to hook them up with a job, at least enough to keep the tanks full and keep them flying on to their next destination. And uh, they all go like, okay, it's as good a place as any as long as it's off this planet. And Daniel goes like, perfect. Well, what are we all standing around for? And he smashes one of the bottles on the nose of the ship. And he goes, it's time to get a move on. Let's dust this moon. Everybody climbs in. I had a fun little moment where I, I give a detailed description of Caesar, like, sh sliding Wait, so which into name the... did they pick? Uh, they haven't decided one yet. That's the top five. And on the next one, they settle. I'll tell you now, they settle on the Phoenix. I, I um, thought that um, I, I thought that was actually my guess. 
But um, I thought that when he smashed the bottle, that meant that he was picking the name. So I thought I'd missed it or something. No, not yet. But yes, the Phoenix is the one they go with. But I, I will also say uh, this is not the only ship that they fly through this campaign. There, there's, there's more than one ship that comes into this play. Um, so yeah, I have this, I, I described a scene where Caesar like slides into the helmsman's seat and sort of shifts com- uh, comfortably into place, flicks all the startup switches and turns all the knobs and gets the engine into its ignition sequence. And they ascend up from the roof of the garage and they get a, a lookout over the settlement of Remy. It's a beautiful day. And uh, then suddenly the engine begins to shudder and the ship starts wobbling in the air and uh, Caesar has to make a quick pilot check to make sure nothing goes awry. It's a low DC, but I want to... And honestly, there's nothing wrong with the ship. It'll fl- it flies reliably after the check is made. All systems nominal. But I wanted to give the hint that something could go wrong. You know, everything is just sort of ramshackle in this universe. And... Uh, so the ship starts roaring through the upper atmosphere and then it passes out of the atmosphere and into the total silence of space. And as they are flying away from the planet, they can see a convoy of ships headed towards Cleaver, all painted uh, in Alliance colors. And uh, you can, you know, there's at least a dozen of them, each carrying maybe three small families with more on the way. And uh, the adventure closes as Daniel looks out and he goes like, just people looking for a home, I guess, like us. Do, 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 cue the credits. As our heroes Not me, fly I'm away. Lo- I'm looking to make a name for myself on the, on the web. <laughs> on the interstellar uh, gr- web. Uh, great, Haunch is a Twitch streamer. No, I'm, uh, I'm an antiquity scholar. I'm going to post my findings on the... On the... He's gonna be like that guy, uh, what, St- Stevie nineteen eighty three, or uh, the the guy who MRE Steve who eats all the old MREs. I don't know about that. Oh, you don't know uh, about that? There's a guy no, on no, YouTube. No, no, I know, I know that, but I don't know about him being that. No, yeah. He oh, well, he's interested to... in antiquities and uh, and <laughs> being famous on the the interweb. No, he just wants to be like eating old food. <laughs> it's like in Snow Crash, he wants to be a stringer for the CIC. He just want, you know, it's like he doesn't believe it belongs in a museum. He just believes that it belongs on Wikipedia. <laughs> I like that. I like that. But yeah, that was the first adventure in the verse. Uh what what is I'm trying to remember because it's it's very much inspired by the slogan, because there is a Firefly RPG that I didn't use. Uh, it uses a more World of Darkness style system with like a lot of D6s. But uh, I believe the slogan for that RPG is something like, get a ship, get a crew, get out of town. And that was very much the inspiration for what happens in this first adventure. So, uh, man, do you want to hit up the tavern? I do. I got a really short thing for the tavern. All right. I don't. I feel bad because I keep shirking the tavern, but uh, we keep coming in right at like ninety minutes, and I don't really want to keep us if I don't have to. Oh, that's fair. 
next time you do the tavern, I'll do this one. Save my tavern picks for when I need them. So uh, this is, and this relates to the campaign that I'm running here. Uh, it's Techno Babble, and it is uh, this is actually taken from one of the Firefly RPG source books. I didn't use the system, but I used a lot of the world details from these source books. And uh, this is a situation where Cecily is playing a character named Caesar, who is an expert at ships, but Cecily is not an expert at spaceships, certainly not fictional spaceships from a made-up universe. So I needed a way to allow Cecily to talk like an expert on spaceships from the Firefly universe without actually being one. And that's where this Technobabble table comes into play. Uh, I believe this is just from the straight-up Firefly RPG sourcebook, page 164. And it is a table. Uh, if there is a problem with your ship, you roll on these tables, uh, roll on this table. It has three columns that you roll, or four columns that you roll on. And that'll that'll tell you a few things. Oh, There's and also, it looks like uh, some techno generator. generators you can find online. Uh, so yeah, interesting. Well, get your dice ready, Tom. I'm gonna call for a All few right. rolls. What kind of dice? D sixes? Uh, a D six, a D eight, a D ten, and a D twelve. My God. Okay. Well, I'm ready. So roll the D six. Okay, it's a three. A three. Roll the d8. It's a five. A three, a five, and then roll the d10. It's a five. So uh, your grav vent fell off. Roll the d12. <clears throat> it's a five. So the grav the grav vent fell off, and that means that there's a performance problem, and the ship suffers a minus two penalty to piloting. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, McGill, uh, I'm detecting a series of nano wave pulse signatures in the ventral power energy core, and they need to declutter the polar housing. <laughs> See, perfect. Uh, your hydraulic coupling is collapsed, and that means the, the engine emits a horrible sound that can be heard throughout the ship. The power converter is seized, and the engine startup routine becomes erratic until it's repaired. Ah, man, our primary boot exploded. There's no ability to steer or maneuver. So, uh, this is, uh, I handed this table to Cecily and let her use it anytime something was wrong with the ship. She could go and diagnose it and then come back with an answer and be like, um, oh, it's, uh, it's the compression converter, uh, it's bent, and I had to f put out an engine fire before I could repair it. And suddenly it sounds like she knows exactly what the problem is. So there's your handy technobabble. From two different sources. Uh, man. All right. So is that it for our episode then? I think it is. All right. Thank you for listening to episode 84, uh, which this has been on the October, the 19th of October, 2021. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, see when we post new episodes, follow us, message us, check us out on Facebook. We're comparing campaign on Facebook 
And uh, if you want to see our show notes, our supplemental materials, uh, videos, anything that we referenced in the show that we talk about, we try to put up in the show notes. And also any pictures of my notebook that has doodles that are relevant, we'll put up there. And that is at uh, comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. Anything else from you, McGill? Level up. Get that ding. Let's dust this moon. Oh, man. I don't know anything about dusting moons. Uh, But who knows? Maybe Haunch Darling does. But Haunch Darling, if he ever sees some things, he better not steal them because they might be haunted. If Haunch Darling steals something, is that thing haunched? Not me. No. (laughs) Take care, everybody.